Um, okay, right. Why don't we go ahead and get started? Um, I I don't know many of you. I'm not quite sure how this was built. Oh, I see a few faces that I know. That's happy. Um, so I'm not quite sure that the um, the heading for this talk necessarily uh, reflected what you'll actually get. So. If some of you who um, anticipated a different sort of talk uh, in the next few minutes decide that this is not your cup of tea, I won't take offense and you can go find something else to do. Because this is um, a rather unique cut into talking about monetary policy. And you'll get a flavor for it uh, within the next few slides. Um, so the subtitle really hits that the core of what I'm, I'm looking at, and it has to do with how um, legislators, both in the US and in the UK, thought about monetary policy. So not the policy outcome itself, but really the deliberative process. And the way that I get a handle on looking at the deliberative process is by um, looking at the legislative setting. So, in particular, I look at members of Congress and uh, members of Parliament, both in the Commons and in the Lords, with respect to how they uh, talked about monetary policy in their respective oversight committees. Now, um, before we go into the actual data, just to give you a flavor for some of the cross-national comparisons. Um, for those of you who've not uh, gone on C-SPAN or sort of been a little bit of a um, C-SPAN junkie and watching uh, hearings in the House Financial Services Committee or the Senate Banking Committee, these, these might come as sort of odd photos. Um, but I'll just point out that we've got two sets of photos at the top, and that's in the House Financial Services Committee, Senate Banking Committee is the bottom. We have Ben Bernanke in both. And just a few pointers that I will remark upon uh, before we get further into the presentation. These are the um, twice annual, semi-annual uh, hearings in which the Federal Reserve is required uh, by law to testify before Congress. And this is in statute in the 1978 uh, Humphrey Hawkins hearings. And the Federal Reserve Chairman, on his own, comes to testify for approximately three hours in each the House and in the Senate. Um, in the House, it looks on the right hand side as though he's got a pretty good audience. The left-hand side, not so much so. Now that's a feature that's going to carry through in, in much of the analysis. What we have, typically, in both the House and in the Senate, is essentially a revolving door. So legislators arrive, generally not on time, some on time, um, ask their questions, and then they leave. Right. Now that's a key feature if we're thinking about any notion of deliberation or cumulative deliberation process. Okay, same goes for, for the Senate. Now, just as contrast, just to look at the different pictures 
Here we have the Treasury Select Committee, which conducts the oversight function uh, in the UK. You have a smaller room, far less grandiose. You have committee members who are all in situ. When they arrive, they stay there, and in fact, reforms in 2010 um, have instituted an attendance requirement for members. So it's rigidly adhered to. Um, and you also have, now this, I've got the back of his head, but that's actually Bob Diamond, so it doesn't really apply. But I couldn't get a good photo of uh, the MPC member, so that's just be a generic member right there we're just looking at the committee. Typically, you've got um, a rota of members by the MPC that testify before the Treasury Select Committee. So not just the governor. Always you'll have the governor as, the, as a contingent member, but here you've got Paul Tucker alongside and usually about three or four members, and they go in rotation. So that's another feature to, uh, to bear in mind. Okay, so if we're thinking about making a cross-national comparison between the deliberative processes in the UK and in the US, um, we have to take on board some significant similarities and differences with respect to the institutions. So on the face of it, there are a number of reasons to expect both processes to be roughly on par or similar. We have, in, in both settings, we have central bank officials who are um, coming to testify in the capacity of being representatives, and that's in quote, of an independent central bank. So in other words, in both cases, monetary policy is not dictated to the central bank by either the chancellor or the treasury secretary. With respect to monetary policy, the central bank has autonomy, but subject to oversight. In the case of the Federal Reserve, as I mentioned, um, the, there is a formal report mandated by statute that is presented to um, um, Congress, and the chairman then speaks to that report. It's a little bit different in the case of the UK. The Bank of England actually just publishes a quarterly inflation uh, bulletin, and that's referred to in the hearing, so it's not quite presented in the formal statutory way. In both settings, there's no end vote. So there's no final decision that's taken by either oversight committee. So one could say, okay, well, they're talking a lot, um, but what's the point? What's the point of the deliberative process? And that's, and that's a good question, because there's not a final outcome. And finally, perhaps key reason to look at them in comparison is this is a fascinating and tumultuous period in, um, in the financial history of both countries during the period 2006 to 2007. Um, just rough similarities. We had severe crisis in the financial sector and required in both cases quite large and unusual um, actions by the, uh, the governments, respective governments. However, having said that, there are clear differences, both with respect to um, institutional differences, 
subtle, so norms and sort of cultural, procedural um, uh, differences. Now, with respect to independence, Simon, you always make a good entry. Come on to that front. Um, Committee independence touches on um, an issue that is of fundamental importance. We have two different political systems, right? We have a presidential system in, in the US and we have a parliamentary system in the UK. Now that, that has implications for oversight monetary policy. In the case of the US, you have clearly a divide between the legislature and the executive. In a parliamentary system, you don't. The committees are clearly a subset of the parliament. So you might expect on the surface, you might expect greater independence in the, in the US case because you have the three branches of government, you have a federal system. Maybe. The caveat to that is that you have in the UK system a treasury select uh, system that actually was started in, in 1979 under the uh, Thatcher government. Um, in which the, the norm and the custom is that the members of the Treasury Select Committees are not front bench MPs, they're back bench MPs. Consequently, there is an implicit independence from government because you have essentially the back bench MPs in some cases conducting oversight for the government in terms of calling cabinet ministers. To account. Now, I'm not going to be looking at that here, but in terms of just comparing the, the committee systems, you might expect a little bit more independence in the UK system than what a parliamentary system might suggest. So that's, that's just something to bear in mind in terms of quasi-differences. Partisanship. Big difference. Anyone who knows anything about American politics can expect you're going to have some partisan dynamics in the US case. Um, so we'll take that for the moment. Maybe, maybe not. In some circumstances you might expect clear partisan fireworks going on where you have conspicuous distributional outcomes, often in areas of fiscal policy. Um, monetary policy is a little bit different. The distributional outcomes are less conspicuous in, in terms of um, a, a conspicuous uh, distributional sense. And so it's not quite clear what the partisan story would be with respect to monetary policy per se. In the case of the UK, you do have quite a big difference on the partisan side. The, 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 um, the select committee system was set up and the Treasury Select Committee in particular uh, along the lines of trying to explicitly adopt uh, a nonpartisan ethos. And this is quite rigidly adhered to. So on the surface you might expect greater partisanship in the US, but once again with this caveat, go ahead. Uh, with the caveat that the um, Monetary policy itself has less conspicuous distributional consequences. Now, committee staff resources and the numbers of members. Well, you saw that um, in the case of the UK, the Treasury Select Committee, there are roughly about a dozen members. Uh, 
Typically, for the House Financial Services Committee, you have about 70, 72 members, a much larger committee, about 23, 24 for the Senate Banking Committees. For staff resources, uh, vastly dissimilar. And in many cases, you know, I talk to, to MPs and members on the Treasury Select Committee, and they, and they look rather jealously at the American colleagues and say, oh, God, you know, it would be nice to have this sort of staff resources that are available, uh, assuming that they would be able to do a better job in terms of deliberation. Well, hold that thought. So you might think that the American counterparts have an advantage uh, to the British counterparts. Committee norms, I've already mentioned a bit on the, the attendance. Uh, the Americans come and BOGO. The, the, the Brits have a pretty rigid adherence to attending the complete hearings. And then the one versus many. So in the case of the US, you have a single representative, um, the Federal Reserve Chairman, Ben Bernanke, versus many of the members for the, um, uh, the Treasury Select Committee. OK, so what are we going to do? What do we do with all this? Well, the problem in trying to analyze, in any empirical sense, the role of deliberation is that it's all about words and it's text. There's no vote to analyze. It's a lot of talking. And that's what you've got as your data. So what do we do with that if we want to do something empirical? Well, um, using textual analysis software, you can gain a handle, pretty good a handle, on the, the empirics that underpin the, uh, the corpus. In this case, the data consists of the actual verbatim transcripts for all the hearings. So the House Financial Services Committee, and this is between 2006-2009, uh, the Senate Banking Committee, and for the Treasury Select Committee. Now I added on, there is another committee the, in, in the Lords, the Economic Affairs Committee, which is strictly speaking not uh, an oversight. Committee, but I've included it just just for sake of adding in some additional data, although it's not strictly speaking the oversight committee. And then we effectively have four text files to analyze. All right. So what does the what does the methodology do, and what what are we seeking to do? Well, essentially, we're trying to assign numbers and statistical significance to arguments into ideas, and ideally to the entire deliberative process. Now that's not an easy thing to do, to essentially quantify ideas and arguments. Moreover, what we'd like to do is not only just quantify the ideas as we can, as we can detect them, but we'd also like to know with some degree of statistical significance, the extent to which certain speakers, either by name, by party affiliation, or perhaps whether they're an internal member of the MPC or an external member of the MPC, or the Fed chair versus a legislator, the extent to which that member and his or her type speaks to certain themes or certain ideas, certain arguments. And we would like to be able to then assign statistical significance to that. So that's essentially the task in front of us. Now with that task in mind, currently in political science, 
there are two ways to approach quantifying any textual analysis or to a large amount of text. So one way, it's called topic modeling, essentially takes um, a large body of text and visualizes them, or envisages them, as, as single documents. Okay, so you might have a document consisting of a speech or um, a government document, uh, a press report, and that might be your single case. And what you'd like to do in a topic model is be able to ascertain for that particular document what's its key topic. All right. Another way to think about this is if you imagine uh, that you've got a bag of or a set of recipes, all right, and you know that the recipes have sort of national origins, and you don't know what those are. You just have a set of ingredients, so you might have you pick up one and have something about you know about garlic and pasta and and uh, tomato sauce. You know, like, oh, sounds like it might be Italian, so you put it in the Italian stack, okay? And then you have another, and, and, and typical ingredients are rice and soy sauce and, and bean sprouts. You know, oh, that sounds like it might be a Chinese one. You don't look at the rest of the ingredients. You just then put them into the different topics. That's a topic model. I don't do that. A second approach is a thematic approach. Now, the premise here is to think about the text in a different way. To think about the text as um, a combination of ideas. Okay, so that people are in a legislative setting making arguments. Now a single person might be fixated on making a single argument or a single person might be multifaceted in making a number of arguments. And we're not particularly concerned about that for the moment. Here what we're trying to do is extract the themes, whether they come from a single individual, whether they're scattered across a number of, of individuals. So using the same sort of analogy here is imagine that you are thinking about opening a restaurant and you decide to acquire a number of reviews from restaurant critics. Okay? So you have a number of reviews and you note that some of them are talking about the cuisine and some are talking about the ambiance and some are talking about maybe the location of the restaurant. And you're not, you're not particularly talking, you're worried about who's saying what at, at, at this point. You're simply trying to capture the themes. Well, that's what a thematic approach tries to do. And by doing so, one of the core features is to look not just at kind of a bag of words in a univariate distribution, but looking at words in context. So in a, some sort of bivariate, at least, co-occurrence uh, conceptualization of the, um, of the word association. So I borrowed this from, actually, um, Sally Lahu is in the uh, social policy department. And he, he's actually 
one of the uh, um, software initiators of, of RSS, the, the software that I use. And so if you want to visualize it, it's basically taking the, the corpus, you've got a number of different themes, um, sort of context units within the themes or the phrases or the sentences, and essentially the software breaks them into classes. Okay? So in a, in sort of, if you say, what I can say feeding, what do you think of, and you, you interview a number of people, you can like, well, breastfeeding, you didn't think you'd come to a talk on monetary policy and hear about breastfeeding. But anyway, so somebody might say breastfeeding, or you think about food, or you think about the preparation, uh, or about the dining experience, and those come out um, as, the, as the different and distinct classes. Right, so the four steps in um, the approach taken here is essentially first step being to break the category into, or the, the vocabulary into different uh, component parts, so subject, verb, phrases, dependent phrases, and so on. The second step is to take um, what are called EQs, but they're essentially elemental context units, but they're, they're essentially phrases uh, in the text, and then lemmatize them, in other words, truncate them. So you might have the word institution or institutionalize and institutions, uh, and that might be shortened lemmatized into or stemmed into institute, you know, part of it. And then there are all categories together. Um, then third step seeks to identify certain statistical characteristics uh, of the classes, and in this case the, um, the measure used is the chi-square significance. And then the fourth step, and that's first three steps are automatic. The fourth step is, from the point of view of the researcher, the hard part. All right. This is where the interpretation comes in. So the automated content analysis, textual analysis software, gives you a lot of output, but it doesn't interpret. It gives you a lot of tools in order to interpret, like the number of classes that are identified across the corpus, uh, the size, the relative sizes, of the classes, and here classes are essentially the thematic component. Uh, typical words in each class, typical phrases in each classes, and certain spatial dimensions. So, uh, I don't think you can read this terribly well, but I'll read out um, part of it. This is one of the um, sets of hearings. So this is for the House Financial Services Committee during the financial crisis. And what the software identifies across the set of hearings is six different thematic classes. So we've got wages and incomes, trade and current account, real economy, financial regulation, process and pleasantries. This is, this is a, a class that's unique to the House Financial Services Committee and really reflects the difficulty in dealing with large number of legislators in a committee. In other words, a rigid adherence to rules within the, within the committee and, and adherence to time limits and so on. And the last one is financial reg regulation and conduct. And what we have here are lists, essentially, ranked in terms of chi-square significance. So for wages and incomes, at the top of the list, um, with chi-square value of 609 is the word wage. But it has, and that's truncated, so it includes wage and wages. Um, and then income, increase, job, population, and so on. Now, usually, from the list of words, you start to get an image 
in your mind what that might be about. Okay, so it's not going to be about regulation if we're talking about wages. And across the board, essentially the task is to look at the list of words. Another way to look at it is, and this is getting into the co-occurrence, is the linkages here. Here we've got the same class wage, and the link between wage and real is the closest, okay, the least distance. And then you've got a bit of a further one between wages and low, low wages, or income, or percent, or increase. So, so these are some of the, the, the tools that, that are used to identify the classes. Thirdly, the phrases themselves. And oftentimes, this is actually the most valuable, because this is showing the context for the words. So rather than just the bag of words, we've got the words in the context. And the pound sign, or the hash, whatever you want to call it, are the representative words in each phrase. So this, again, is from that first class, wages and income. And if you just read through, it's nearly double from 8.5% to 14.4%. At our real wages, da, 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 and you read through it, and well, it sounds a lot like wages and incomes. Okay, so the package itself does not give a label for the classes. It gives you these sort of tools in order to identify the content. It also, in the, but in this paper, I don't really look at this. It also then gives you spatial uh, representations for the relationships between the classes. Now this is actually looking at the whole of the um, house hearings for about 30 year period um, in actually a book project that this, this paper stems from. And the idea here is that the package begins with the whole of the corpus, it makes a single divide initially between the classes and then continues to subdivide. And then the last, before we get to the, to the sort of the meat of it, I'll just show you the last way to think about the data in a, in a spatial way is um, in what's called correspondence analysis. And in correspondence analysis you can look at either 2D or 3D representations. And I'll just show you one of the 3D representations of, um, of the data. So say we've got here a plot. And I've now identified each of the, the little squares and they're sized by the relative um, sizes of the chi-square significance for the classes. And the different colors represent the different thematic classes. And so you've got um, the keywords associated with the different classes and just running the video you can start to look at, at least in a three dimension, relationships between, I'll show you one, the one up here for um, this red class up here uh, is actually the, the class that's dominated by Bernie Sanders. The party is the independent, and he talks a lot about education, social, policy, wage, and so on. So you can unpick that in a, in a spatial um, diagram. I, in this paper, I don't do that, but um, it's one way to sort of unpack the, um, the data. Okay, so here we're getting to the meat of the analysis. What do you find? These are the summary statistics across the board. We've got, as I mentioned, the four 
um, committees, House Financial Services, Senate Banking, Treasury Select, and this is our kind of our oddball, just, just for basis of comparison here. Now, the word count in the first three are is, is roughly on par. They're not hugely dissimilar. Obviously, it's much lower because there are only two committee hearings here. So we're just really setting this aside for the moment. Um, the take indicators simply indicate the... Um, let me show you if I can write on something. How the, the files are constructed, I'll just write it down here, is that, so you've got a series Various text, speech, statement, remark, or whatever, by you know, X individual. <coughs> and the, the tags are identifiers that I would impose on the date. So, name of the person who's speaking, party affiliation, say the role of the individual, whether it's MPC uh, member, internal, external, uh, or whether it's the Fed chairman. Um, and you can roll in date. You can put in whatever you want. Now, this is independent information that's that's imposed into the data by the researcher, and that will come into play in a moment. So, the tagged indicators is just giving you a simple count for those uh, in each text file. The number here just gives you the number of speeches or comments by by each person. The classification rate is essentially a, a measure of goodness of fit. So we've got a reasonably good case for the House Financial Services Committee, uh, the Treasury Selects Committee, and Economic Affairs Committee in the Lords. All right. We also have at the bottom the classification. So we have six classes, as I mentioned, for the House Financial Services Committee, just four classes for the Treasury Select Committee. And I'm going to break these down in a moment. It's a little bit unusual to have as few as four classes. Um, typically, you would have somewhere between six and nine. And I'll talk about that more in a, in a moment. Okay, so what are the features here um, in terms of the content? Okay, and this is the curious case of financial regulation. By the way, as I'm going through there, if, if anyone has any questions, please feel free to stop me at, at any point. So the curious case of financial regulation is in both houses, both in the House Financial Services Committee and the Senate, um, nearly half of the discourse in the oversight committees is devoted to talking about financial regulation. You've got zero in the Treasury Select Committee. Interestingly though, you've got okay, about 30%, 29% on monetary policy, which, funnily enough, is the actual intent of the oversight hearings. Now you might say, well, that seems very peculiar. And it is very peculiar. And this needs unpacking. But part of the story 
is that in the U.S. case, we had legislators who were talking quite intensively about Dodd-Frank. Okay, in 2009, um, the Obama administration had introduced measures for uh, financial reform under the Dodd-Frank bill, and that was discussed quite extensively. Now, you might say, well, all right, well, maybe, maybe the Treasury Select Committee just talked about that elsewhere. And maybe they did. In both scenarios, both sets of committees do, con do conduct other hearings, other hearings that focus specifically on other topics, like regulation. The interesting feature is that you're having regulation bleeding over into monetary policy far more in the case of the US than you did in the UK. It does beg the question, and I do think that this is um, an interesting question and something that I think needs unpacking, as to why financial regulation in the UK had not um, really gotten in the books as of as of, of the state so far. I mean, in the case of the UK, we are, we're in 2012, we're not anticipating passage of the financial services uh, bill until, I think, June of 2013. Dodd-Frank passed in 2010. Well, yes, you had election differences. You had the 2010 <coughs> election uh, in, in, uh, in the UK, which may have delayed matters for, for instituting reform in the UK. Of course, you had the, the Obama administration coming in 2008, which may have prompted it more, but it still begs the question, yes, but the financial crisis, strictly speaking, really took off a year earlier in the UK with Northern Rock in the autumn of 2007, and we didn't have Lehman Brothers until 2008 in the US. So it's still a bit of a conundrum trying to figure out the timing of this, and that's going to take um, definitely some unpacking. This is definitely a work in progress, so these are not final uh, report on findings. What about the question about staff resources? Um, well, this is, this is curious, and another point that we'll need unpacking. One premise that needs investigation is that fewer members, in the case of the Treasury Select Committee, and fewer staff resources meant that you had less of a free rider problem than in the US case. So members who showed up here were really expected to have done their reading to be able to conduct their interrogations informatively and without the assistance of staff lists of questions. If you've ever watched um, the, you know, either the House or the, the Senate hearings back to back with Treasury Select Committee, a conspicuous difference just in watching them without doing any kind of analysis is looking at the ability of the Treasury Select Committee members to follow up questions. They're quite adept 
and adopting a very you know, interrogation style format and following up questions. And moreover, not following up their own questions, but also those of, of previous questioners on the committee, because they're all sitting there through the, through the duration. Whereas in the case of Congress and congressional committees, you have members asking their questions with little or no follow-up. Now, that puts the onus of responsibility onto the Treasury Select Committee members to do more preparation work. The question is, does it make for better quality deliberation? If it does, with what effect? And I don't have a definitive answer for that. All right, this table now draws upon these tags. All right. For the identifiers themselves, um, what this table seeks to do is capture the chi-square significance. Oh, oops, wait a minute. I forgot. I just realized I have made copies of these. So, for those of you who have difficulties reading, I forgot I made these. Um, those are the core tables. Well, the, this table, uh, just to kind of walk you through it. In the brackets after each tag, and we've got party tags, we have uh, mem- you know, the, the, uh, the roles, or whether it be the chair or the member, We've got uh, name tags for the individuals. We've got the dates, but I don't, I don't include the date tag in here. And in brackets, after each tag is the actual chi-square value. And the way to interpret that is for a 5% statistical significance, the threshold is 6.6 because it's one degree of freedom, and 10.8 for 1%. So, um, and I'll walk you through these in a moment. Let me just say one other um, overarching thing. This first line gives you the numbers of members. So, for the House Financial Services Committee, roughly 70. Um, As I mentioned, it's a bit of a revolving door, somewhere between 39 to 50 attending at, at some point. Not even at a given point in time, but at some point in the three hour time frame. No attendance list at all for the Senate, so we can't really do much there. Much smaller numbers for Treasury Select Committee and for the Lords Committee. Okay, right, so we'll break this down. Um, what do certain types of members tend to focus on? Well, it's perhaps not surprising that legislators in both countries are keen to talk about jobs. Highly sensitive, politically sensitive. Um, so that's not hugely surprising. Although one thing you do have to bear in mind is this is these are oversight committees for monetary policy. And in the US, you've got a dual mandate. Bear in mind. So you've got both the, um, uh, the inflation element and you have the growth element. You've got the dual mandate Uh, But you've got a single mandate in the case of the UK and an explicit inflation target. So that's quite different. So the fact that you still have a focus on labor markets in spite of having a single mandate is interesting for 
for the UK case. Nonetheless, having said that, if you look at um, the, the levels of chi-square significance, you've got quite significantly higher levels in the case of, of the US than you do for, um, for the UK. What's also really conspicuous here is that just looking at the US case is you have no significance for Bernanke. A little bit of a one-sided conversation. Okay. A little bit, a little bit of discourse here by external MPCs. So that was Blanche Flower, our, our, our homegrown, Tim Besley, uh, and um, Andrew Sentence. So those were the external MPCs. What about the partisan story? As we may have expected, although we weren't entirely certain, we've got a, we've got a partisan story to tell here, quite a significant one, um, with clear partisan significance for Democrats and Republicans, um, for wages and incomes. So we'll sort of set this aside here. This is this unusual class that focuses on keeping time for the rules and the procedures within the House Financial Services Committee. Um, in the Senate Banking Committee, once again, when you're talking about the labor market, um, for regulation here, equity injections, the Republicans were more sensitive to that, perhaps so, because that raises solvency issues there. Um, the numbers are, are less sizable in terms of the, the levels of statistical significance. In fact, while well, excluding the, the Lords Committee, you don't even get a 1% level of statistical significance for the Treasury Select Committee, whereas you do for, um, um, for both committees in, in the US. All right, a um, number of features here. So what does Bernanke talk about? Well, he's not talking about labor market, not to any significant uh, degree, but he is talking about inflation projections. Well, that's not surprising and that's in the Senate. Uh, and he's also talking about the conduct of financial regulation in the House. And in both those two cases, he's really dominating. All you have one other member uh, at 5% significance, six members for net firm financial regulation. But for the most part, those are the two classes that Bernanke uh, dominates. Um, well, actually, no, I've, I actually should have done an arrow down here, conduct for the, uh, for the Senate as well. For the real economy, um, we've got Bernanke clearly dominating in, um, in the House as well. So what you have as a story, and this is, this is part of um, a theme that, um, that I found in, in a book project that looks across the 30 years of um, oversight of monetary policy in Congress from the 1970s up to 2008, and then also at the transcripts of the Federal Reserve. But the theme that, that emerges in the US case is that the Fed officials, the, member, the um, uh, chairman of the Fed, and both senators and representatives essentially talk past each other. All right. For the most part, you have Bernanke and, and before him, Greenspan and Volcker and Miller and Burns uh, talking about the guts of monetary policy. And most members of Congress don't go there. 
Across about a 30-year period, only eight or nine members of Congress in both houses actually got into the guts of monetary policy, and those were typically the chairman or the ranking member of the committees. The other members talk about labor markets, they talk about fiscal policy, things like Chairman Greenspan, don't you think the administration's stance on social security ought to be, don't you think that uh, energy policy ought to be, they tend to divert the conversation elsewhere. So, you have ships passing in the night. Interestingly enough, in the case of the Treasury Select Committee, you've got MPC members, whether they be external or internal members, in all four classes. Um, a little bit less so in labor markets, but nonetheless, you've got the external member case there. You've also some, you have some degree of uh, specialty for the deputy governors and for the internal external MPC. So we have Charlie Bain, perhaps not surprisingly, having strong statistical significance for real economy. We have Rachel Lomax talking about monetary policy framework. Now this is quite intriguing. I think this is rather a neat finding. Particularly in light of what may or may not be announced on December 5th, we have Paul Tucker uh, aligning with Mervyn King quite nicely in the same class in talking about issues of liquidity, bank lending to, uh, to the banking system, Bank of England's lending to the, the banking system. So closely aligned there in terms of their areas of focus in the oversight hearings. Uh, now, this last bit of analysis <coughs> looks at, let me try and explain this. It's essentially introducing um, uh, well, the household constant. So taking a single member or a party affiliation, one of the tags, and saying, okay, I'm going to hold this tag constant and let everything else vary in order to ascertain what is statistically significant about what that individual or about what that party focuses on. And that's what this table does in a very, very, very preliminary way. So all this is looking at is just looking at the weights, which at least tells an interesting story. So the question here is, how do we distribute um, the relative weights of the discourse between initially first the central bank spokesperson um, and the legislative members? So we've got, in the case of the House Financial Services Committee, uh, Bernanke constituting about 46% of the discourse and in the Senate about 50-51%. In the Treasury Select Committee, interestingly enough, Remember, we've got many members. We don't just have one. We've got about 72% of the weight of the discourse that's given to representatives of the central bank. So they're talking a lot more than the MPs are talking. If you take out or look at the proponent by Norman King, by the government, it actually works out about the same as for Bernanke. So basically, that added 
is the effect of having more members in the discourse. Now the question is, what does that matter? And how do we explain it? One possibility is that um, there is a norm in, in the congressional committees that members come in, committee members come in, with prepared statements. And they read out their prepared statements. Or they don't even show up and they just send in their prepared statement to be put into the record. Now, that could be inflating the discourse on, uh, on, the, uh, on the side of the, uh, the congressional committees. Another interesting feature here is, I'm not quite sure how to interpret it, is the bias, for lack of a better term, in the Treasury Select Committee. Now, of course, Labor uh, held the chair of the committee with um, John McCall. Um, but it's, it's really you know, more than double the, uh, the labor component, which is quite um, a, a difference between the divide between Democrats and Republicans in, um, in the Senate and the House. All right, so what do we make of all this? Well, it needs a lot more work. What I've given you is just a thumbnail sketch so far. What's actually needed at this point is to delve into the context itself, not only looking at and digesting all of those representative phrases for the classes, but also then putting those back into the context of the hearings themselves in order to get a flavor for the nuances. And partly what I would be um, looking to do, and I've done some of this so far, but, but not in a systematic way, is going back to the previous chart, we've got, we've got the various weights for Democrats and Republicans. But an interesting question then would be, OK, we know their weights, but what are, they, what are the themes that they tend to talk about? So typically, the Democrats were focusing on issues of American country families, the trade deficit, the cost of living, uh, transparency issues in the FOMC. And quite a bit different, Republicans who are interested in the Dow, uh, bank regulation, business lending, stress tests, risk man management. Now that shows a, a clear difference in, in partisan uh, areas of focus. Interestingly enough, perhaps it's, well, it's less conspicuous, or maybe it's, maybe it's equally conspicuous. I'm not quite sure yet how to interpret this for the Treasury Select Committee. You've got um, the chair clearly governing more of the, the, the discourse in terms of the process and the pleasantries for, um, for the committee, for the Treasury Select Committee with, with um, McFaul. But you've also got more of a focus on labor markets, which perhaps would be expected, compensation issues, whereas conservatives more interested in insolvencies, the value of sterling. Um, this is, I think this simply reflects, the oddity here for the Lib Dems reflects the small numbers in their areas of focus, but it does come down to questioning um, the issues of, of the mandate given to uh, the central bank, whether it ought to be single or, or a dual mandate. In short, in terms of some preliminary conclusions, 
Um, although it's just a thumbnail sketch, I suspect that I, I will have a good case for um, better quality deliberation in the Treasury Select Committee. The tricky part will be saying, okay, so what? If you have better quality deliberation, does that matter for oversight? Does that make for better oversight? That's more difficult. Um, I think there's a clear case that the institutional features and the norms definitely shape the, uh, the deliberation and the content of the deliberation. Again, how do you then link that to the actual outcomes? That's also a trickier issue. Both in the case of the U.S. partisanship matters and the, you know, the stress put on non-partisanship in the Treasury Select Committee matters. Exactly how that matters needs unpacking. And finally, numbers matter tremendously for deliberation. I think probably linking back to the quality of, of deliberation. And that's it. So, I'm really open to suggestions, guys, because this is this is a first draft of this. So, if yeah, um, can I just look, when you talk that there's no mention of regulation through the analysis the software, yeah. uh, have you done anything that, <clears throat> for example, from interviews that would indicate it? came up but it wasn't highlighted by the software. Yeah. Um, what I would like to do, but this is this is the trick actually when you talk about packaging it into a single article. Um, but one of the things that I'd like to do is talk to the, the members of the Treasury Select Committee. And unlike members of Congress, they're actually very approachable and very happy to speak to you, um, especially when it comes to issues of deliberation. I've had informal talks with some of them, and they're, they're actually very keen to talk about that. So that's that's something I intend to do. Are you familiar with many other, um, or with any firms or finance professors that do similar research but actually try and use it for trading strategies? And, and well, just one more thing. And, and if, if so, do you think that like an increased movement towards this type of textual analysis will lead to more efficient market outcomes <laughs> type of deliberations. More efficient market outcomes. <laughs> uh, and we all live happily ever after, right? Um, I, I don't know about more efficient market outcomes. Um, but in terms of having more... The interesting thing about economists, because uh, I know a fair number of them, monetary economists, they're actually, um, they, they look at this very suspect. Um, they have a knee-jerk reaction that is reasonably negative when it comes to trying to, number one, deal with words uh, and arguments, and number two, try to do anything empirical or statistical with them. And, and I mean, a good example of that is... Um, and I, for those of you who don't know, I, the, what came before this is um, a book project called um, Deliberating American Monetary Policy and Textual Analysis. And it was about a six-year project. Um, and it, my co-author, who is my monetary policy expert, um, is Andrew Bailey at the Bank of England. And he had... Um, <coughs> actually, he was the impetus for this, the book project. And it, it came... The impetus um, began in the following way. Um, I had been using the textual analysis 
software to look at parliamentary debates, 19th century Britain, and he, as an economist, had looked at this very suspiciously. You can't do that. That's you know, it's a ridiculous thing to do. But he was also a historian, and when he saw the results, he thought, God, that actually really makes sense. And knowing monetary policy, as he does, um, one of the features that he had been dissatisfied with in thinking about monetary policy making, um, both Bank of England and thinking about the Federal Reserve, is that much of the economics literature that looks at monetary policy, um, generally in terms of committee decision making, um, uses something like a reaction function model, so you bang in a few variables, and you have you know, predicted interest rate uh, values for each member, um, ideal positions for each member, and really no role at all for a deliberative process. So the members, the committee members themselves, may as may as well as well have just mailed in their votes, or um, you know, why show up and talk about it? Seems like a complete and total waste of time. But knowing the process from the inside, that actually it's not a waste of time. People's views are changed. They talk about models of the economy. Forecasts differ. There are heated discussions. Um, and it does matter. Which then raises the question, if it does matter, then how do you make a case for measuring that? And that's where the textual analysis software comes in. Yeah, and quite frankly, in the economics literature, um, this sort of approach is far rarer than in, the, in political science, in sociology, in psychology. Maybe some of the prejudices of economists. I don't know if economists are here. But being married to an economist, I can say that sort of thing. Tony? Sure. Yes. I'm sorry, oh, a, I'm sorry I missed the beginning of a poem of the select committees. Oh, there you go. But. Huh? but you, you, you compare, forgive me if you've answered this in no, part of what you said. The, you compared uh, two sets of processes by committees that are in very different political systems. Uh, the, the American system, in many ways, looks formally uh, more perfect. Yes, I see the separation of the executive and the legislature, and the. Into all of this, Oh, keep on, keep on, yeah. And with the British system, this is a classic mixture where you've got people in your Treasury Select Committee who are from the party that's in the executive at any one point. So it's a very different system. Yeah. Well, but they're backbenchers. Sorry? But they're backbenchers. They're not. They're, not they're, back, they're backbenchers, but they are nevertheless, and certainly in the time this research was done, you know, the, the, there was still patronage within Parliament for selecting members. Of the Yes. Yeah, before the 2010 reforms. So there's a, a closer link between the executive and the treasury committee than there yeah. is uh, in, in the United States, if I understand it, and there would be. Right. So that means that there's a different career structure and a different set of expectations, possibly. Now, question, is there more partisanship in the American system or more willingness just to stray? Whereas in the British system, argue oddly, uh, partisanship has to be suppressed. Yeah. And certainly with select yeah. committees I've been involved with, the, the most chairs seek to, as one select committee chair put it to me years ago, you know, I want reports that are controversial, not political. 
because he didn't want yeah. breaking down on party lines. And when they do break down on party lines, as we saw in the Culture Committee and you know, the Murdochs, it, it's yeah. unusual. So, so uh, a question I'm staggering towards in, in articulately is, does the nature of the two political systems, to some extent, I wouldn't say distort, actually, but I mean, have an impact on the way they behave and therefore the findings you'd expect to produce? Yeah, I think so. I mean, that's, I think that's in terms of the institutional differences. Um, yeah, you know. The congressional the, committees are much better staffed, don't they? Better staff. Yeah, but the irony, the irony here is that, that yeah, the Americans have more staff, but the, it, the ultimate irony is that it allows them to, then to operate as free riders, um, which makes the job that much more difficult for the Treasury Select Committee members. But the question of committee independence, that is going to need more unpacking. This is, this is really the first um, cut at, at the research. Um, doing one of the, the other sort of prejudices that people sometimes have um, when you think about um, automated textual analysis. They say, oh, well, that's all, you know, it all just delivers, delivers the, the results for you in a nice, te- you know, nice tidy package and you just need to write it up. That's anything but the truth because you can get some summary results, but what it actually takes is then walking back in stages to the original text. I mean, you, you essentially have then guideposts. You have identified what's statistically significant. You have the phrases that are statistically significant for a certain theme. You can then go back, not only look at the phrases, but then go into the context. And that's where I would hope to be able to unpack issues of the nuances of committee independence. But in a sense, from your general work point of view, that you're interested in what the differences are, at least as much what caused them. In that, in which case, it wouldn't matter so much whether there were these cultural and institutional. No, no, I, no. I think that they're fascinating differences. But what I'm looking at is how they then shape the the deliberations. Right. Um. Yeah. Thought about including. I mean, just to sort of try to measure the impact or quantify the impact of, of committee deliberations on public opinions on public opinion, I don't know, maybe including textual analysis on uh, on media reporting. I, I know that in the U.S. that any 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 times Ron Paul speaks, uh, you know, it sort of brings the media focus away from the substance of the entire uh, hearing and actually focuses almost exclusively on, you know, Paulites and, and the gold standard. Okay, so Jason, that's that's a, that is a perfect point. One of the issues, and and this is possibly something I, I should point to in terms of differences, is the U.S. case. Those are highly publicized hearings. Um, you, you've got masses of media cameras, and the snippets are reported on the evening news. And oftentimes you look to senators and representatives' websites and they'll have snippets from, you know, I you know, I asked Chairman Greenspan about Bernanke about this and you know, this is the, you know, I got I'm speaking for my constituents and I put it to them and you know, that sort of thing. Um, so they're very conscious, Americans, of speaking to audiences outside the committee hearings. Absolutely. And that's 
That's actually part of the problem in terms of this revolving door. So they, they show up, they give their little blurb, and they've spoken on behalf of their constituents back home, and off they go. They toodle off. Um, and that's very different for, for the Treasury Select Committee. Now, having said that, um, I mean, we saw this in the case of the LIBOR hearings over the summer. There, there has been um, you know, more attention, more media attention. A little bit. I don't have an, an empirical measure for this, but my sense is, and maybe Tony, you have some views on this, is that it's still nowhere near in the uh, yeah getting to getting into that sort of media circus that you've got, and that has ramifications. Having that media circus has ramifications because it clearly means for the deliberative process, the committee members are you know less cognizant and, and even concerned with what's happening amongst their colleagues and and actually you know with the content of of oversight per se, and far more cognizant about making their political point so that they can be on the evening news back home or posted on their on their website. Yeah, just a follow up on that, how, how can you track the difference between rhetoric and intent? So if you've got someone just banging on the political point over and over again, does that kind of correlate in any way to intent in the outcome of the process? That's a really good question. And Yes, that's, it's along the lines of also how you capture persuasion. How do you know whether rhetoric actually persuaded somebody? And to do so, you've got to actually get inside people's minds. And we're not very good about doing that. Um, which in the political science literature has also given rise to a lot of skepticism among you know, a lot of rational choice um, people who say, well, you know, it's mere rhetoric, right? They have rather uh, negative connotations when they're talking about rhetoric. It's mere rhetoric, you know, cheap talk, hot air. Um, and it all doesn't really mean anything in the end. Now, you can say that, and then you can often find immediate exceptions. Okay, let me give you an exception, a recent exception. Think about um, the recent presidential campaign, Romney and Obama, and the statement of the 47%. Now, that probably resonates with most of you. I think the, the very famous remark by Mitt Romney, presumably uh, among friends, and uh, it was um, reported more widely months later that he really didn't care right, about the 47%. Now that, interestingly enough, one interpretation, and I wouldn't say that this interpret, you know, is the be-all and end-all of uh, Obama's victory, but one thing that the Obama campaign was able to do was to shift the discourse, shift what we call it frame in terms of what is the election about is it, is it uh, a mandate on uh, Obama's record, his policy record in terms of the economy or are we going to shift it to talking about who cares most about the American people and I think the Obama campaign was quite quite good 
about shifting the focus, the frame, in terms of what the election was about. Now, if that's not a message about rhetoric, I don't know what is. But it's not all okay. You know, you can find anecdotes here and there. To look at it systematically is very difficult. But coming back to the, the original thing is intent. How, how do you marry it back to intent? The only way that I know to do this is, um, and, I, and I don't do it here because we don't actually have the data. It doesn't exist for it. But in the case of the U.S., we do have hearings in the Senate Banking Committee when they do vote. And that's for the nomination and the renomination hearings for the Fed share. And there we can actually marry up words with votes. That's about the best way that I know to capture intent. You know, if you're not marrying up, you know, being able to marry up words and, and actions, well, I don't know what intention is. If intention doesn't relate to the actual action, then I don't know how it matters. Um, and that we can do, because basically then vote becomes one of the tags. And you can then ascertain the statistical significance in terms of the argumentation of those who maybe supported, in Bernanke's case, the renomination and those who opposed. And as it happens, the, the Bernanke renomination is actually a very interesting one because you had 30 uh, senators who voted against, and that's the highest number in the history of the Federal Reserve. Uh, so it's an interesting test case. But you don't always have that data to hand because there's not always a clear, actionable outcome to the words. Okay. Can I go back to the previous point about, um, I mean, it seems to me, and having never studied the American government systems, this is a heroic um, outsider's view, that the, the way in which congressional committees operate looks to British eyes anyway, and therefore I think it, is, it contains some of the elements of theatre hmm. that the House of Commons, the chamber of the House of Commons represents, for things like Prime Minister's question time and the question times more generally. So that whereas Congress, certainly to an outsider, looks rather serious, whereas British committees look rather serious compared to the House of Commons chamber, indeed MPs will always say, most of the work of the House is done in committees, you know, chamber, high profile but irrelevant. And is, is, there, is, that, is, that, is there any truth in that, that committees in the United States are more knockabout and the more high profile they get the TV coverage you've discovered, see them in films, you know, I mean, um, whereas that kind of thing in Britain goes on in the House of Commons chamber? Well, I, yes and no. In the case of the U.S., you have um, most observations of what happens in the, the oversight committees in terms of what's reported on the evening news are, are, are little snippets. Um, usually, you know, you'll have been very heated comments or a controversial statement, um, or as I say, when members will post little bits on their websites and so on. So in that sense, it's, it's very um, high profile, the, the committee hearings are in bits. <laughs> However, across the board, it's very rare that Americans would sit down and watch 
six hours in total, three in the House and three in the Senate, of the whole of the, the hearings. Um, even rarer that anybody would watch that for the Treasury Select Committee in this country. It's more common that you would have, you know, because it's, it's on the main news channels, you would have the Prime Minister question. And that's a shorter time frame, too. So it's sort of less investment of time. Um, so in terms of the theater, it depends, it depends if you're thinking about the duration of it versus certain snippets. And then, so for the committees, you've got certain snippets that are high, very high profile. Across the board, rarely does somebody sit down and watch the six hours um, across the board. Whereas people will for Prime Minister questions. Now, I don't know in the UK um, how many people, and I think this is, this is changing, would be watching, say, the Parliamentary Channel or going on to the Treasury Select Committee website and watching the hearings. I, I honestly don't know um, whether that's in increasing or not. I suspect it's changing. I think in the wake of the last couple of years, it's become more high profile. It's not a very clear answer. but I, I would suspect that, that committees are where most of congressional theater takes place. And that's that's mostly because uh, you know congressional committees have subpoena power, and so usually the stuff that gets the most attention is when Congress drags Hillary Clinton all the way to yeah. the committee and tells her, you know, yells at her about the Benghazi attack. You know, that's sort of what, what gets the most attention in the United States. Whereas right. floor speeches, nobody cares. Yeah, mm -hmm. hardly anybody's there as well. Right. I think that watching congressional committees. Their style is, I think, significantly more aggressive towards its witnesses than most British select committees, with the possible exception of the Public Accounts Committee, which is vastly more inquisitorial and much more willing to batter. I'm not sure I would agree with that. Um, I, as my summer entertainment, I was watching the, the LIBOR hearings. This was a hard thing to do in the mountains of Idaho where I had a, a, no broadband and had a satellite connection trying to get a connection to watch the, uh, both the, the hearings. So no, I was watching them back to back, the LIBOR hearings in, uh, in the congressional committees back to back with what was happening in the Treasury Select Committee. And they were vastly different. I was, okay. This sounds a little bit silly, but I was really proud of the MPs. I thought they, they did a great job. I thought they were very challenging. I thought they were very smart. They, asked, they followed up questions. They, they followed up you know, their colleagues' questions. And it was embarrassing. As an American, it was embarrassing watching uh, members of Congress. They, they was just, they, yeah. oftentimes they just were clueless. Um, I'm not talking about the, the, the quality of the questioning so much as the style and the willingness to use aggression in Congress. And you think that's greater in the US? It, well, to me anyway, it looks very much sharply more aggressive. It may be useless, but it's aggressive. Um, and it might have to do with the subject matter, because it certainly is less aggressive when it comes to monetary policy, because most of them don't understand it. There are very few economists. In, in Congress, they don't understand it. So they're loath to look like idiots and ask a question that would make them look foolish, and so they don't. 
So remember, you know, in more, and in the House Financial Services Committee, much of the committee membership is packed there um, because they're from marginal districts. So it's for partisan advantage so that it helps their re-election campaigns. They're not there because they have any interest at all in monetary policy. In terms of the two systems, do you have a view as to how monetary policy would have changed in the last four or five years? I mean, would it have an impact on monetary policy at all? Would what have an impact? The, the, the deliberations? Yes, the deliberations between the UK and the US. Well, that ultimately is what I'd like to marry up. Clearly, we're going to have differences between the Dodd-Frank bill in the US and when it comes out in 2013, the Financial Services Act in the UK. Um, and you are going to have very clear differences. To try to explain fully the reasons for those, I think, is going to be a, a large task, but I think one that is worth doing, but I think it has a lot of different elements too. Do you have a body similar to the FSA? Sorry, go ahead. Do we have uh, you know, uh, a body similar to the NSA in America? Um, no. No, as a matter of fact. Um, the interesting feature of the, of the Dodd-Frank bill is that it's created something called um, the SSOC, sort of a governing council that is um, a coordination body for financial stability. But you, you don't have, of course, the FSA is a dying institution. We're going to have the, the, the PRA the Prudential Regulation Authority, uh, and then the FCA. So um, in terms of a single agency that will emerge in 2013 in the UK, whose mandate is to take responsibility for financial stability in the UK, you do have a single body. You've got the, the Financial Policy Committee under the Bank of England. You don't have a single body uh, for that in the U.S., which I think reflects the more fragmented federal system in the U.S. Um, and so that's, that's a very tangible difference for you know, going on future. And these committees, do they typically have like a, a sort of brief they have to speak to? I'm just thinking here because you mentioned that in the States you had like um, six classes or so, and in the U.K. you only had like four, which is always quite narrow. And I think partly what that reflects in the, U in the U.S. is you've got the dual mandate. You've got um, the Federal Reserve that's mandated with not only uh, you know, controlling inflation, price stability, but also growth. And those are on equal footing. Whereas in the case of the U.K., you've got a single mandate. You've got an inflation target. You've got a subject to that clause that says, you know, to concern other matters, but really it's a single mandate. And that may be part of fewer classes for the UK. It's a great, I mean, you mentioned a dual mandate, and the DOE seems to have a de facto dual mandate as well at the moment. Is there greater transparency in the way the, the process and in the way the committee members think about it, the DOE committee versus the Treasury staff? forecast on whether you know, is the process very different compared to say the Fed? Well the key difference is that in terms of transparency is that the Federal Reserve 
is the only central bank in the world that publishes its verbatim transcripts from the FOMC meetings. It does so with a five-year lag, um, but it publishes them. And the uh, Bank of England's Monetary Policy Committee has never tried to publish transcripts. And I, I know uh, that it had, when it was first set up in 1998, it tried to agree upon, for the first couple of meetings, it tried to agree upon uh, the transcripts and the committee members couldn't agree. So they went with the minutes. And that's, that pretty much tells the history. And the new FPC, Financial Policy Committee, um, is not even trying to go down the transcript route. They're just going straight to the minutes. Um, and in fact, for the monetary for the for the FPC, um, thus far they've not had to report any any voting at all. There's not been any dissension um, so far. It's all been consensual. It'll be interesting to see if and when the FPC um, members divide and then publishing those votes may have um, interesting consequences. So in terms of transparency, coming back to the question of transparency. Um, I was referring to transparency in terms of their models and the way that the economic theory that they have also supports the conclusion. No, I think, I think I think they're I think they're quite um, transparent about that. I mean, the quarterly inflation report certainly for the Bank of England is very transparent in in, in publishing those. And the Fed increasingly, right after. The FOMC meetings is very um, is increasingly public in terms of the uh, the chairman Ben Bernanke giving press conferences, which had not been done prior to April of 2011. So they're moving down a road for greater transparency. I don't think we've got yet to the place where they let the cameras into uh, into the policy uh, making committee meetings themselves. Uh, do you reckon that uh, once this research is completed, it could be used um, to possibly improve the deliberation process? Or uh, how do you think? For Congress? I don't, I, don't, I don't know if anything's going to help Congress. I, I, I shrug my shoulders in, in utter despair thinking that Congress is ever going to improve. One can hope. Um, I, I, I actually think that um, the UK model is pretty good. Um, I mean, I think there's areas where it might be improved, but, but I actually think there is, there is a lot to admire in having a small size, and you know, the, the members themselves would not say, oh yes, isn't it wonderful, we have very few staff resources, I'm sure I would never get them to say that, but I actually think that it does put a greater onus on them to work harder, um, and members of Congress are in an institution that has become so polarized um, that it, it, you know, it is in increasingly so, that I, I think that the role for deliberation is, I don't know if it's wishful thinking, I mean, things can change. One actual feature that could change and not with that much difficulty, is the committee sizes in the U.S. could be vastly reduced. And that's a simple measure. It might be a political hot potato, but it could be done reasonably easily. 
that I think, that single task, I think, um, would would have a significant um, improvement on the deliberation. Not to be all and end all, but I think it would help. So when you say it's objective of this piece that you wanted to kind of identify a sort of a system which would be good as well. Well, I never thought about it in terms of that, sort of identifying the best system, but one could go down that route. Have you found the evidence that um, any of the deliberations by the committee has an impact on monetary policy? The deliberations within the committee? In the US. Um, yes. Um, insofar as... The, the interesting feature um, about the Treasury Select Committee is that it does not have, this is a direct comparison, it does not have um, veto power over the appointments for, say, for instance, the governorship of the Bank of England, um, whereas the Senate Banking Committee does, right? Now, having said that, um, in this period leading up to an announcement on the next governorship. One feature that does matter is how the candidate, whoever that candidate might be, would be received by the Treasury Select Committee. Now, that's not to say that he or she would be vetoed because they don't have that power to do so, but they could be given a rough ride. And the Chancellor and Prime Minister would want to avoid that. So it's it's a more subtle, I suppose, power that they have. Um, you know, less hard and fast than what you would have. And that has an effect um, on appointments. Um, it, it also has an effect in terms of less monumental decisions. Um, Treasury Select Committee, you know, is holding hearings quite frequently, and in the minds of the policymakers at the FSA and at the Bank of England, is okay if we were called to account, how would we defend this? And that is in the back of the minds. That that is clearly there because they are held to account. Uh, it's kind of, I suppose, one could um, imagine a research project where you could get a handle on that. It'd have to be a pretty carefully designed one, but I think you could. Okay? Yeah? Well, any further questions? I'm local, I'm here, so please do contact me. Thanks. Thank you.